This afternoon we're coming to one of the probably most fitting chapters we could come to on a communion Sunday. It's a joy to be able to gather every Sunday because to, when you come together on a Sunday we are coming to a day of Christian worship. The, the day that we express in, in a structured fashion as a corporate entity our reverence and our adoration for God. This adoration flows through the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ whenever we are praising God. It's through the eternal Son of God that we approach God, and we've been reminded of how we approach God as we gather and partake of these elements at the Lord's table. It's this worship where we flow our worship through Christ that, that makes our worship distinctly Christian worship. We, we worship God in Christ Jesus. We worship God in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that's why we have a reason to be here this afternoon. That's why we have a reason to take these elements and, and celebrate the union that we have with him that gives us unity with one another. We're here because of Jesus. And from that we learn that Jesus is worthy of our worship because we're redeemed through his death. That is what these elements portray. That is what our passage this afternoon that we're going to look at portrays. Jesus is worthy of our worship because we are redeemed through his death. Our, our passage this afternoon it, it highlights this truth as well as gives us a clear picture of Jesus receiving the praise that Jesus deserves. My, my goal that does not lie in, in demonstrating how we ought to apply our text necessarily. I believe the application is clear as we look at it this afternoon. We need to worship Jesus. That's the clear application. My, my goal is to take us into the text so that as we look at the, the picture that John has recorded for us, that we are collectively moved by, by the, the majesty and the glory that we see. I'm convinced that... that we cannot do any better than, than focus on the, the majesty and the glory revealed by God himself through his inspired word as it came to us through his son, through, as John told us in the first verse of the first chapter, through an angel that then brought it to John as the Holy Spirit moved John then to record it. We have his inspired word. We can focus in his word on the majesty and glory of God this afternoon. As you saw earlier on the screen, we're in Revelation chapter 5 here in our series through the book of Revelation. This is the chapter where we see Jesus in a heavenly setting. We see Jesus receiving worship. We see Jesus being adored by creation. Well, while we're going to look at Revelation tonight, we need to remember that it's tightly connected to chapter 4. We, we looked at chapter 4 two weeks ago where John was given the vision of God the Father. As God the Father was seated on his throne and, and he was receiving worship from the most exalted representatives of creation. We had, if you remember back there, we had the, the four beasts that were right around the, or, or four um, creatures rather, living beings, not beasts, but living beings around the, the throne. And then we had the 24 elders and they were worshiping God the Father. He was being worshiped for his majesty. He was being worshiped for his sovereignty, he was being worshipped as the creator. We realized when we looked at that chapter that our worship is our proper response, 
or worship rather, is our proper response to our sovereign creator. He is our sovereign, the one that rules over us because he is our creator. He has the right to rule. This afternoon, this worship that we saw being given to God the Father will now be extended to Jesus Christ, his son, as well. It will be extended to Jesus because of what Jesus has done for God the Father's creation. We should remember that these two chapters serve as a backdrop to to the horrific tribulation period judgments that are coming in this book. John is about to reveal the judgments that are coming. We, we know Revelation most well for the judgments. Well, these chapters are a backdrop to those. And, and we believe in our understanding of end times that, that the events we're looking at, these are taking place at the very beginning of the tribulation period. Before the judgments begin to be poured out, so that means the rapture of the church would occur just before chapter 4. The tribulation judgments themselves begin in chapter 6, but before we get to the judgments, we have chapters 4 and 5 that set the stage. In this stage-setting time, John is taken into the throne room of heaven where he's given a vision of God the Father as, as he sits on his throne ruling his creation in chapter 4. And then we see God the Son as the victorious Lamb in chapter 5, where we're at this afternoon. Jesus is worthy of our worship because we are redeemed through his death. The, the big picture of the, the son here that we have in our chapter is that of Christ as the redeemer. He, Christ alone is, is worthy. He is the only one qualified to, to open the tribulation scroll that will be revealed, to deliver the judgments that, that God is going to pour out on rebellious mankind as his righteous judgment for those who have rebelled against him. In doing so, Jesus completes the work of redemption that began at creation, was set back, or or was required because creation rebelled, and and the redemption began at that first step when God said a solution will come, It culminated at the cross, and now we will see Jesus complete it. He will complete the work of redemption by bringing creation itself back under the sovereign rule of the one who's sitting on the throne. There there will be judgment for fallen man as as that happens, but there also is restoration for redeemed man. John's heavenly vision in chapter 5 is given to us in, in four different scenes. Each scene, as you look through the chapter, is initiated by the words, I saw. Every time John says, I saw, we're moving to a different scene. It might help you visualize these scenes as, as we work through them this afternoon. If you think a little bit like a television camera that, that zoomed in at its tightest picture in the first scene, and then it sequentially zooms out, taking in more and more of the surroundings as we go to additional scenes and moving out. Let, let's begin looking at the first scene in our chapter by reading verse 1. John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Here we have the scroll in the right hand. The scroll in the right hand. If you recall from looking at chapter 4 a couple weeks ago, John has just finished describing God the Father as he's sitting on his throne in, in all of his majestic splendor. 
He, he now, or John had in chapter 4 expanded that view of the camera enough so that we saw God seated on his throne. Then we saw the four living beings that, that surround him. And then we concluded with the four elders. Those four living creatures were angels of the highest order is what we concluded when we looked at that. The four elders we took as representatives of the church, although there's, as we discussed two weeks ago, much debate around that. Well, as that view expanded, these different beings, these, these highest representatives of God's created orders, these orders of angels, the, the representatives of the church, these were offering worship to the Father. They were singing hymns of praise to, to the holy, sovereign creator who was sitting on his throne, ruling that throne. Well, now John's vision zooms in once again to, to the Father alone. He's, in this verse, he's zooming back in, and as John looks closely, he sees that in God's right hand is a scroll. Uh, I know our Bibles call it a book, but the way we would think of it, it's a scroll. Books, as we think of them, weren't known for at least 100 years after John came. So it's a scroll wrapped up. It's laying on God's hand. The first thing to notice is that position. It's in the right hand of, of the Father. It's coming from the, the one who has supreme authority. He was sitting on that throne, and that represented his right to rule his creation. He's in the position of authority. So whatever this scroll contains, we can be assured that it's backed by the authority and the power to execute it fully because it's coming from the creator God. The other thing that John notes as he looks at it carefully is that this scroll is full is written on the front and the back. That, that's unusual. Usually scrolls were only written on the front because that was the smooth side, but once in a while there was too much to write on the one side, so it rolled over to the back side. The, the implication is that there are so many things contained within this scroll that they don't even fit on the front side. Of course, we know from the rest of the book that this scroll contains the judgments that are about to be poured out. This, the series of judgments which God will, will bring on the earth that all collectively prepare for the, the, the second coming of Christ or, or provide the second coming when he sets up his throne and rules upon this earth. But, but John himself is not immediately aware of the contents of the scroll because the scroll is sealed. He observes it's sealed with seven seals. Seven seals arranged in some unique fashion so that each seal must be broken in sequence before a portion of the scroll can be read. One seal would be broken, a portion's read, another seal's broken. The, these seals, the way they're positioned on, throw, on the scroll, do not allow John to know at this point what this scroll contains. It may seem to us as if these judgments are are long in coming. After all, we've been waiting for them for nearly 2,000 years since John's received this vision. We've been waiting. Well, let's recognize as we look at this first scene that while we wait, the judgments are already written. They've already been declared by God. They're sealed up by God. They're, they're preordained. They will come to pass exactly as God's declared at the time that God has prepared. From God's standpoint, there is no pause. There's only preparation. So having spotted the scroll in God's hand, John now zooms out just a bit and begins to take in the area immediately around the scroll. 
Look at verse 2. And I saw again a strong angel now proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So as that vision zooms out, we have the arrival of the lamb. The arrival of the lamb. And, and as the, it starts, as John notices this strong angel that, that's near the throne. This angel calls out with his great voice and great authority verse one to come forward who's worthy to to take this scroll and to open it to to break the seals that the idea of worthy is that the one coming forward must be morally qualified to break the seals in in that day scrolls were sealed up they were stamped with a wax seal and they were not to be broken by someone who did not have the authority to break that seal well here the authority needs to be moral qualification to take the scroll from the divine hand of the Father and then execute with the Father's authority everything that's written on the scroll. There, there, it has to be one who has the authority that, that's required for the tasks laid out. And at first, John is distraught because as he waits, no one is found qualified among all of creation he combines three terms there in verse 3. There's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. That, that means there, there's no person alive. There, there's no angel that's worthy of the task. There's no one even among the dead. There, there's no one, no created being worthy among the living or the dead to open this scroll. So for a moment, John apparently thinks that the scroll will remain sealed. Well, in, in his mind, uh, it seems like he concludes that would mean that God's intentions might be thwarted, at, at least for the time being. And, and such an idea shakes John emotionally, so he begins to weep. How could it happen that God's will can't be executed? Well, and quickly, John's told to stop. One of the elders that's there says, Stop. One is worthy. Notice how this, this worthy one is described. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. They, these are two messianic titles that, that were, were introduced to him first with. I said he, that, that he's the rival of the lamb, but it's, he's described first as the lion of the root of David. Messianic titles. The lion is from the tribe of Judah, the lion is the one promised in the Old Testament. The, the, the one that would come from Judah, of, this comes straight out of Genesis 49, where Jacob's promised that Judah would have an everlasting ruler from his tribe. This is the one who's seen. The Jews understood that became a title for the Messiah, the Christ. He's also described as the root of David. That points to a promise that was given through the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 11, that the Messiah would come from David and, and would rule God's people. So the one that's being pointed out here is one who bears the titles of the promised king. He bears those titles. He is the Messiah that's been waited 
been, been waiting and waiting and waiting for. One important aspect, through the royal announcement, we're told that this one has overcome. I, I would hope all of us, when we hear that word overcome, it rings a bell by now, because we had that word pop up many times in chapters 2 and 3. In, in those short addresses, remember, that John put to the, the front of this letter that he sent to seven different churches that were to receive copies of the letter as he wrote a little address to each of those churches. There was a promise to the overcomer. Those who would overcome, the, the one who overcome was the one who, who persevered in his faith until the end. Well, this one that John has pointed out to him has overcome. He has persevered in faith to the end, completely persevered in faith, and he and he alone is worthy to open the scroll. He alone is worthy to break the seals. There is none found worthy in creation, but this one is worthy. By implication, that means that this one must be above creation. He must be separate from creation. He must somehow be outside creation. And yet, this one has overcome within creation and is worthy. Well, as we know from Scripture, that describes our Savior perfectly. He is above creation. He is separate from creation. He is outside creation. But he overcame within creation. He is worthy. So having noted the arrival, I'm calling him the Lamb because we get to that here in a moment. John zooms out again. And we have God the Father on his throne, still in center. Now we have this Lamb standing near him. But now we'll zoom out and we finally get far enough back where we'll be able to see the four living creatures and the 24 elders once again in, in John's purview. Look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. In my opinion, John's description here of the lamb standing before the father is, is one of the most amazing pictures we can find anywhere in scripture. Obviously, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. We, we understand that. He is the Son of God, the one who died on the cross, who, who rose again from the, the tomb, the, the one who was just introduced as the Lion from the tribe of Judah. Yet look how John sees him. When, when John turns his attention to Jesus, Jesus is a Lamb, a sacrificial Lamb. He, he is seen as the unblemished Lamb that was sacrificed he was as slain he was the perfect sacrificial lamb that could be sacrificed he was unblemished but he was seen in that post-slain condition and in fact jesus bears all the marks of having been sacrificed as john looks at him he is as if slain now obviously there there are a lot of metaphors employed here but 
But I believe John clearly sees Jesus, and, and he's using these metaphors to describe Jesus fully. Jesus is standing. He, he's clearly alive. But he has been dead. Uh, apparently, he still bears the telltale marks of his death visibly on his body. Uh, the nail scars that, that must remain visible on his hands and his feet. The, the spear wound must still be seen at his side. The, the, the small ragged scars that come from the crown of thorns must remain on his brow. The, the perfect sacrificial lamb. That, that horrible cross-stitch pattern of the scars from the whip on his back. You know, this is the, the unblemished lamb that is nothing but blemished at this point. One must wonder if the only thing that will remain unblemished in the perfections of heaven for all eternity will be our Savior. His scars apparently remain so that they forever remind us of the perfect cost of our salvation. Here is one who as, was as slain, as if slain, standing. John describes Jesus also here as having seven horns. Here's where the metaphors start piling up. Seven horns would be the sign of complete power and authority. We don't think of a sacrificial lamb as having power of authority, but these horns demonstrate power and authority, and they're followed by seven eyes, representing the fullness of the Spirit of God, doing God's bidding throughout his creation with perfect omniscience, that the slain, risen lamb is both omnipotent and omniscient, making him the one who's worthy to open this scroll, the one who has the, the power to execute whatever it contains and the wisdom to do so. This is the one who's worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God the Father. So he does exactly that. John sees him approach the Father and reach up and take the scroll from the Father's right hand. That indicates that God the Father agrees and, and, and assigns even this one to have the right to execute the Father's plan, to bring it to culmination as, as the scroll is handed over to the Lamb. Immediately, when this occurs, the four living creatures and, and the 24 elders fall down before the, the, the throne with, with Father and the Lamb now. They fall down before them and, and worship. You may recall from chapter 4, there were two songs of praise offered to the Father. Now we encounter in verse 9 a, another song of praise. Offered by the very same beings that, that praised the Father in the previous chapter, but now these same beings are praising the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Yet it's not the veiled form of the Son of God. It's not the Son of God in this veiled form that, that could take the, the form of man, walk upon this earth, and nobody knew he was the Son of God. That's not who they're falling down. He, now, he has his full deity on display. He has his full power on display. This is the Son of God with visible power and authority. This is the one who elicits immediate worship by, by those who are accustomed to being in the very presence of the glory of God the Father. That's the, the, the four beings, they spend their, their lives surrounding the throne of the Father, worshiping Him in all of His glory, and now they fall before Him, these most exalted beings of all creation, the ones that are privileged to have positions closest to the throne of God. They immediately 
respond to the taking of the scroll with praise. What power and might and glory the Lamb must have. Look at the song that is immediately sung. I, I often turn to this song and the others in this chapter when we're taking communion together. I did again this afternoon as we took the elements, as, as we're passing them out. I, I love to turn this passage and, and meditate on these songs that, that we have here. Look at this first song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. The song's focus is on the worthiness of the Lamb. Worship is focused on the fact that that He and He alone, uh, apart from all of creation, He is worthy to take the scroll. But why? Why is Jesus alone the one who is worthy? Why is He alone worthy of this praise? Well, it says it right there. You are worthy for you were slain. He is worthy of all their praise because of what he accomplished through his sacrifice. He purchased for God with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The, the focus of their praise, the, the foundation for his worthiness is his redemptive activity. Mankind, lost, sinful, rebellious mankind has been redeemed. People have been redeemed. The the cost was tremendous. The the Son of God had to be slain. But the result is the redemption of people from every corner of the globe. John uses these four different descriptors in verse 9 to indicate that that Jesus calls his followers, those that he has redeemed, those who, who have been purchased by his blood, he calls them from every place, and from every possible people group on this earth. Every tribe and tongue and people and nations. No matter what category you want to use to slice and dice humanity, however you want to segment people out and divide them up into different groups, John looks and there's representatives from every group found within the purchased of those who were purchased by the blood of Christ. Of course, there is obvious application here. We, as Jesus' ambassadors, we need to be part of taking his gospel to every possible place, to every possible people group on this earth. There is a reason that we should be praying that God would allow us to take people, his gospel to people who don't look like most of us, that they're not like us in, in many cultural ways because Christ died for them. He bought them with his blood. We need to be thinking and, and acting on a redemptive scale that, that is equal to what he accomplished. We should have a strategic concern that, that there be effort underway to get the gospel to every possible people group on this planet. Now, I won't chase the ins and outs of that this afternoon. That would be another sermon, and you probably want to go home eventually. But we need to be concerned. Jesus is worthy of our worship because we are redeemed through his death. And part of that worthy of worship that we give him is to proclaim his name to others. 
I trust we recognize that the worthiness of our Savior for worship demands that we seek to see his worthiness proclaimed by every people group in the world. John Piper has famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. We want every people group in this world be worshiping the one who's worthy of that worship. As we look at this song here by the 24 elders, not only should we marvel at the scope of what Jesus has accomplished through his sacrifice, we should also marvel at the results. These are people who are taken from every possible people group on the planet and are given new positions before God. Because they're people from the planet, Earth, they are rebellious sinners. That's who they are. But now they're, first of all, placed into a new kingdom. Paul tells us in, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that, that we were in the dominion of darkness. We were in that kingdom that was ruled by Satan, but now we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the kingdom of Christ, the one through whom we have redemption. Our redemption changes our citizenship. It, it places us into Christ's kingdom. Corporately, we make up this new kingdom. We should rejoice in that. And at the same time, we, we need to always remember that it is named Christ's kingdom because it came at the cost of his death. The lamb was slain. Our Savior died on the cross. The transference to this new kingdom was an infinitely hard-bought transaction. We were made a new kingdom. And secondly, we were made priests individually. Each and every one of us who is bought with his blood are individually priests now of our God. That, that means that every one of us can approach God the Father and worship him directly. We can join with, with those before the throne of God in, in worship. We have access to the Father, the access that was severed by sin, the, the rupture between us and God, the, the, ear, um, it, the, the uncrossable gulf between us. It's been bridged. That which was severed by sin has been restored. And it's all through the sacrifice of Jesus. What a privilege we have. We worship God directly because we've been made priests. Then lastly, the song says we assume the position of rulers. We will reign. We will co-reign with Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth. That too is a result of what he's accomplished here with his blood. Christ is indeed worthy of our praise. Our hearts should echo the worship that, that these four living creatures and the 24 elders are giving here in these verses. That's why I love to meditate on these words as we take uh, the elements together. We are worshiping the same one that these highest exalted beings are worshiping, our Savior. Well, then John goes and zooms out one last time in, in this chapter. One more time he zooms out and his vision expands to take in the, the, a wide panoramic landscape that somehow encompasses the entirety of heaven along with the rest of creation. And don't ask me how that works because I don't think we're meant to understand exactly how that works. But, but that's what we see here as we zoom out one more time. We have, I'm calling it the view of heaven, but somehow within that view of heaven, all of creation is covered. Look at verse 11. Then I looked. 
And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The sight of John looks far and wide is, is amazing. It's truly much grander than any of our imaginations can paint. As we let our imaginations run in, in our mind's eye and try to imagine this, we still fall short, I'm sure. In verse 11, John sees surrounding these four living creatures and 24 elders as he zooms out further than he ever has in the, the, his vision, countless angels. We have it myriads of myriads or 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That, the idea here in, in that idiom is simply that this is a number that cannot be counted. Innumerable number of, of angels are, are all gathered together and they're all participating in the praise that they're, that's being offered to God, saying with a loud voice the praise of verse 12. So while they cannot be counted, they can certainly be heard. With a loud voice, they're all crying out praise over the worthiness of the Lamb, adding their voices to the song of the four creatures and elders. Now, if you look carefully here at verse, verse 12, these angels are speaking about the Lamb rather than to Him. They're, they're speaking, worthy is the Lamb, instead of second person, you are worthy. Um, I don't know, maybe it's because they're further back from the thrones. I'm not sure why that switches, but at any rate, they're not directly addressing the Lamb. Instead, they're crying out with a loud voice for all to hear, all creation to, to hear that the Lamb is worthy. Jesus indeed is worthy of worship. Once again, we should note that his worthiness is connected to the fact that he was slain. It's his sacrificial death, his redemptive efforts that, that continue to be in focus. His willing, submissive, Humble death. Be, because Jesus humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross, he is now worthy to receive praise. And what praise it is. The, the angels offer this sevenfold description of praise. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's like they're just banging on a gong with thousands of voices ringing it out. What a set of attributes, though, to assign to Jesus in worship. The Lamb who was slain is worthy of all possible praise. Immediately, as the angels call out their praise, the entirety of creation agrees. There was none found worthy within all creation. Remember, that's the beginning of chapter. There's none in all creation who's worthy to take the scroll, but... All of creation agrees this one is worthy. All creation agrees with proclamation of praise, with the proclamation of praise given by the angelic host. They all agree the Lamb is worthy. He is what creation was not. 
He's worthy to take the scroll. He's worthy to break its seal. He is worthy to execute the judgments on it. He is worthy to receive praise. He is worthy of worship. Yet the Lamb alone is not the sole focus of worship. Look at the description of praise given in verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. God the Father and God the Son are both included. Creation will praise both equally for the work of redemption, that it was accomplished through the Father's plan and it was accomplished through the Son's execution, and both receive praise. Father and Son are linked here in, as we culminate in the redemptive activity of mankind. Remember, this is the background to the judgments that are about to re- be revealed. Chap- chapter 4 gave us two songs specifically praising the Father. Chapter 5 has given us two songs specifically praising the Son. And now as this section of the vision closes out, we close with a final song of praise to both Father and Son. All creation combines them together. They, they praise the combined work. They praise the combined glory of the Father and the Son. They worship the Father and the Son. All creation worships. This amazing picture of praise ends with these highest exalted representatives of creation, the four living creatures, saying, Amen. These mighty angelic beings, those that spend their existence in the presence of the God the Father, express their complete agreement with all that is being proclaimed by the rest of creation. As they hear all these songs of praise and these cries of adoration, they, they unanimously respond with, Amen. So be it. May the Father and the Lamb be continually praised forever and ever. They're in agreement. And in full agreement with them, the 24 elders fall down once more and worship before the Lamb who's standing before the throne of God. Jesus is worthy of our worship because we are redeemed through his death. Jesus is worthy of our worship because we are redeemed through his death. Are we captivated by that? Does that idea grab us today? Are we captivated by the lamb who was slain? Creation, when he is clearly seen, will be captivated by the sight of the lamb who was slain. Creation, when it sees him clearly, will worship because we are redeemed through his death. This afternoon, we've walked through this marvelous chapter. As we've done that, I I keep coming back to the realization that, that we must continually bring ourselves back to the wonder of the cross. We are redeemed through his death. The one who is worthy above all creation. Jesus' accomplishments through the cross can can be looked at from so many perspectives. The the Bible gives us numerous angles to consider, but always focuses in on the fact that we are redeemed through his death. Each angle, each aspect of the cross can be looked at over and over again as we seek to understand the depths of our redemption. This is something that, that we 
strive to do every Sunday as we gather, as Christians gathering on the Lord's day, when we celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead after he hung on the cross. Yet one result that should always come as we gather, as we gather week after week, as we seek to spend our lifetimes considering the cross work of our Savior, one thing that should always result is spontaneous praise. Praise. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Worthy of our worship. Because we are redeemed through his death. What a joy. Let's pray. Father, we end our afternoon looking at this glorious passage and we recognize that we fall so short of where we need to be, where we desire to be when it comes to worshiping our Savior who is worthy because we are redeemed by his blood. But Father, my prayer today is that we would be captivated more as a result of our time in your word today than we were before captivated by the glorious work of the one who is worthy of our worship because of what he's accomplished, the lamb who was slain. For it's in his name we pray, amen.